Welcome back to eConversations with Nave, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Today's podcast is the webinar replay of the May 2023 Nave Outlook Survey Results Webinar held on May 22nd, 2023. Nave Outlook Survey Chair Dana Peterson discusses the Q2 forecast results with Outlook Survey Analysts Ryan Sweet, Brent Meyer, and David Bowers, and takes questions from webinar attendees. Dana, take it away. Caitlin, thanks so much. And I'm so glad to be here and to also welcome my fellow uh, chair, uh, sorry, our fellow teammates, uh, Ryan Sweet, David Bowers, and also Brett Meyer. I'm going to start off with just providing an overview of the survey, and then each of us will provide a little bit more context for the survey, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. So I'm going to share my screen. Okay, so about the NAB survey, the Outlook survey, we had 45 professional forecasters weigh in on a variety of themes and topics and also provide point estimates. It covers the outlook for 2023 and also 2024. It was conducted between May 2nd and May 9th of this year. And the original sur- and the survey originated in 1965. The NAB survey committee includes Julio Coronado, who is our NAB president, as well as myself, along with Jack Kleinhens, Brett Meyer, Yelena Maliev, David Bowers, Ryan Sweet, Ken Simonson, and also Melissa Goldling, and our very own Caitlin Patrick. So the agenda today will be highlights by myself. Uh, Ryan Sweet will cover GDP and labor markets. Brent Meyer will cover inflation, monetary policy, and interest rates. David Power Bowers will cover the currency. I'll talk about risks. And then we will leave the remaining time open for Q&A. We hope to be in front of you maybe for 15 or 20 minutes. And then the rest, of course, will be for our participants to ask questions. So what were some of the big highlights here? Well, the main uh, headline, I would say, is uncertainty and divergence among respondents. But there's still this expectation that the U.S. will weather some of the biggest crises we're facing, including the banking crisis, uh, the debt ceiling Uh, looming debt ceiling issue and also concerns about the U.S. dollar. In terms of growth rates, uh, they expect that uh, growth would be modest, real GDP growth would be pretty modest this year, um, but there's still division over whether there will be a recession or not. And for those who believe that there will be recession, they've pushed those expectations back until later this year. In terms of the labor market, payroll gains are still positive in every quarter, but Uh, the peak unemployment rate is now higher uh, relative to the February survey. Uh, The economists who waited anticipate that there's going to be slightly faster inflation and for the inflation rate uh, or the PCE core and potentially also the headline to return to the 2% target later than they expected back in February. Uh, With respect to the dollar, many of them feel that the dollar is somewhat overvalued relative to economic fundamentals, um, but they're not terribly concerned that the dollar is being threatened by de-dollarization. In terms of the Fed funds rate, uh, expectations for this year uh, in terms of the peak rate are slightly higher than they were in February. And also respondents pushed back their expectation for the next rate cut from the end of this year to early next year. In terms of what's going to drive the Fed's reasoning for cutting rates next year, it is quote unquote general confidence that inflation will continue to slow to target at some point in 2024. In terms of risks, 
Uh, too much monetary policy is still the top risk uh, and has been for several surveys now. And also the Fed achieving a, a soft landing is the top uh, upside risk. However, in terms of downside risk, we had uh, a number of respondents uh, focus on financial crisis, certainly with the banking crisis going on. And also there were many write-in votes regarding the debt ceiling. And when we uh, first issued uh, the survey, uh, the debt ceiling wasn't really on people's minds at the time, um, but certainly has become so. And in terms of when, uh, just in general, uh, panelists, again, think that uh, while there's still a lot of uncertainty about the outlook and you have very different views in terms of when and how things are going to happen, they still think the U.S. will do quite well or, or at least manage through a number of crises. So I'm going to turn it over to Ryan Sweet to discuss GDP. Thanks, Dana. I think the key thing we're going to hear throughout our discussion today is uh, divergence. And you know the, you can see these views in uh, the, the outlook for GDP, but then also by extension, uh, the outlook for the labor market. This first chart we're showing you is uh, the median quarterly forecast uh, for GDP uh, at an annualized rate. At the time of the survey, when we uh, pulled participants, they had their first look at Q1 GDP, which you can see rose 1.1% at an annualized rate. Uh, the panelists did upgrade their forecast for GDP growth in the second quarter, but downgraded it for the second half of this year. Essentially, in the February survey, participants were looking for GDP growth you know, on average around 0.7% annualized. Now that's been cut down to roughly, uh, or to 0.3% annualized in the second half of this year. Uh, the upper revisions to GDP uh, expectations in the first half of this year pulled forward some growth most likely from 2024. And you can see throughout the year, uh, panelists cut their forecast for GDP growth. Now it's still positive, uh, but it, the outlook has uh, weakened a little bit since the February survey. And if, my personal assumption is that this is a reflection of what's been going on in the banking system and the expectations for tighter lending standards to weigh on economic uh, output uh, late, later this year and into 2024. And then if you look at the next slide, uh, recession risks are still fairly uncomfortably high. Uh, you know, uh, more than third, roughly 40% of participants expect put the odds of a recession between 51 and 75%. Uh, even this maybe seem a little bit at odds with the prior chart where you don't see any declines. Uh, the median estimate is not for a decline in GDP. Uh, but keep in mind the definition of a recession by the National Bureau of Economic Research is a prolonged and extended period of economic weakness. It's not necessarily two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. Uh, and these, these re recession risks uh, you know, tied back to GDP, you know, the dispersion of GDP forecast, the bottom five, expected decline, an outright decline in GDP in 2023, whereas the top five expect GDP growth on average to be about 1.5, 1.6%. So you can, uh, uh, participants are still worried about a recession. Uh, and when you have GDP forecasts where you're barely growing in the second half of this year, you know, the economy is vulnerable to anything that goes wrong. Then if you could turn to the next slide. So we asked, uh, if you expect a recession, when do you expect anticipate to, to start. And not surprisingly, you know, with economic forecasting, because a lot of uncertainty, you either get the timing or the event right, it's very difficult to get both. Uh, and you can see that the, uh, the bulk of participants expect uh, the uh, recession, would, if a recession were to occur, to start in the third quarter of this year. Looking at uh, 
those participants that expect a recession next year, you know, roughly 21% anticipate a recession, uh, you know, starting, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, Q4 of 2023. So it's most likely looking that panels, the, uh, the majority look for a recession if there were to be one in the second half of, of this year. And the next slide. One thing we're uh, uh, asking uh, panelists about or respondents was, uh, what's the you know the peak to trough decline in the next twelve months of house prices? And you know, I think this gets reflected in, in the the mild nature of uh, those that are expecting a recession. Uh, even without a recession, house prices, you know, roughly sixty seven percent of participants expect a zero to nine percent peak to trough decline in house prices. Uh, a few more are more pessimistic, you know, a larger share. 10 to 19% uh, uh, peak to trough decline in, in house, house prices. And then turning to the labor market, you can see that uh, panels expect job growth to really slow. Uh, you know, we're creating more than 200,000 jobs on average in the first quarter. And the expectation is that it gets ratcheted back uh, with each uh, you know, following quarter. Uh, in the second half of this year, you know, the panelists expect roughly less or less than three or 30,000 jobs to be created per month on, on average. Uh, and that's most likely a reflection of you know uh, poor or weaker economic activity, uh, and uh, that's going to factor into the next chart, which shows you the unemployment rate uh, in relative to the uh, February uh, survey. For the most part, changes to the unemployment rate were fairly modest. Uh, you know there were, you know some tweaks here and there, uh, as Dana alluded to in the beginning. The now the peak in the unemployment rates a little bit higher than what was expected in the February forecast. But all in all, you can see that the anticipated trough to peak, so the bottom in the unemployment rate, which is currently 3.4%, uh, to its peak is fairly small from a, a historical perspective when it comes to uh, uh, increases in the unemployment rate, you know, throughout the business cycle. So with that, uh, I'll pass it back to Dana. All right, and I, hi, I'm Brent Meyer, um, economist at the Atlanta Fed. Um, I guess I should start with standard Fed disclaimer, uh, just in case I say anything. So these are my views and mine alone. They don't reflect the views of the Federal Reserve System or the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Uh, but speaking of views, let's look at what the panelists said for uh, inflation. And actually what's plotted here on the screen is our uh, uh, panelists' core uh, PCE inflation uh, projections. Uh, these are quarterly. So if you look at the, uh, the year over year for, uh, or the Q4 over Q4 for 2023, uh, panelists revise that up uh, rather strongly, I think, uh, up from uh, about 3% in the previous survey to a Q4, Q4 rate of uh, 3.6. Uh, and I think a lot, and this is true for all measures of inflation that the panelists are forecasting. Uh, uh, my view is, is they're seeing a lot of persistence uh, feed through um, from a little bit stronger GDP growth for uh, uh, actualization for Q1, stronger employment report and inflation, uh, as we know, has been uh, very stubborn uh, at running well above uh, the, the FOMC's target. And they're projecting that out uh, through, you know, through the near-term forecast horizon. Uh, if we go to the next slide, folks, uh, a panelist anticipate uh, inflation core, as measured by the core PCE inflation rate to persist above the uh, FOMC's longer on average inflation target of 2% uh, for quite some time. In fact, the, the majority, almost 60% of our panelists 
see core PC inflation running above 2% uh, through 2025 or later, uh, and only 2%, a, a, a very small minority, anticipate that coming down uh, um, prior to the end of this year. Uh, now, I think one thing that's going on here in the background and one thing that these medians are, are, and, and averages are, are, are swamping is there's a lot of disagreement, I think, among our panelists. Uh, if you dig into the top five and bottom five for growth, you see uh, you know, folks that expect uh, growth to remain strong this year versus a cohort that expects uh, you know, a recession and those recession special questions uh, play in there. Uh, on inflation, it's the same story. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, dispersion, and um, if we go to the Fed funds target slide on the next page, there's a lot of dispersion here too. Uh, there are two interesting things maybe to note about this: is that one, as Dana mentioned at the outset, uh, the majority of uh, or the median forecast from our panelists are uh, does not have the Fed, Fed funds rate uh, 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 slowing or, or lowering until 2024. Um, but what's also interesting here, I, I think, in the context of a bit more persistence in inflation and a bit stronger uh, incoming near-term data, is that the, uh, the typical respondent here uh, uh, doesn't have the, a higher terminal rate on the, on the, on the Fed funds uh, forecast. So it's still at a, a, a terminal rate of uh, uh, in between five and five and a quarter. If we do turn to the next slide on when uh, uh, the panel does expect uh, uh, the Fed to begin cutting rates, again, uh, the majority of folks don't have this happening until uh, 2024 or later. So these are ordered uh, uh, you know, as a majority of respondents. So it's not in uh, chronological order here on the, on the uh, Y axis. But you see that 40, almost 50% of individuals anticipate the Fed is going to start lowering the Fed funds rate. Uh, the FOMC is going to start lowering the Fed funds rate in the first quarter of 2024. Uh, and the next highest uh, uh, category was at, there, there at the end of 2023. But again, that's about uh, that's a little less than 30%. So what's going to prompt the, the Fed to begin cutting rates? Well, the panelists, uh, um, uh, the majority of panelists, 67%, say it's gonna be general confidence that inflation is gonna to continue to slow to target at some point in 2024. So again, I think relative to what we saw in upward revisions uh, uh, on, from panelists to their core PCE inflation forecast, we need to start that uh, seeing that at least stabilize, maybe move in the other direction. Uh, there were some individuals that, that uh, were split, roughly split between a severe recession or a spike in unemployment. Again, those would be negative uh, uh, you know, signs of a very sharp turning point in, in, on the real side of the economy that would cause the Fed to wanna to react to that. Uh, and if we go to the next slide, I, I don't think there's too much to mention here. Uh, these, these, uh, um, these are the, this is the median uh, quarterly forecast for the 10 uh, year notes. So we, see, we didn't see much movement in the, um, the short end of the yield curve, but here you know, towards the longer end, uh, we saw that the, the medium forecast was was uh, revised lower in the short run, uh, and I that that's uh, um, that's that's kind of interesting uh, uh, given given what we saw uh, in some of the other parts of the survey, but may reflect uh, um, some staying of the hands of, of policymakers when it comes to uh, uh, the the trade off between 
uh, um, the, the effects of the banking crisis on general financial conditions and um, you know where, where folks thought the Fed funds rate was gonna go. So um, I'll turn it over to our next uh, speaker, David. Okay. Uh, thank you, Brent. Um, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is just talk through some of the um, panel views on the dollar. And if you look closely at this slide and go five lines up at the bottom, you'll see the panel's projections for the um, the, the euro dollar exchange rate um, going out to um, to 2024. As ever with currency forecasting, there's a very wide range, but the message is quite clear. People are looking for the dollar to weaken against the euro um, from current levels around 108 to 110 by the end of this year and 112 by the end of 2024. But I think there's a, there, are, there are wider spread concerns as we can see from the next uh, two special, next three special questions. Um, the first is there is a, 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 a widespread concern that, that the, you know, the dollar um, could uh, uh, appreciate in broad terms quite meaningfully. Um, so half our panel expect the dollar to in, in, in effective exchange rate terms to fall between one and 5%, and a quarter of the panel um, expect it to fall as much as six uh, to 10%. So there are some quite significant underlying concerns here uh, that the dollar, dollar risks are very much skewed to the downside. And looking at the next slide, uh, the reason for that is um, a sense that the dollar is overvalued. Um, it's 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 not a, an, an aggressive position. Um, uh, you know, people are saying it's somewhat overvalued. That's fifty-one percent think it's somewhat overvalued. Three percent say very overvalued. Um, you know, more than a third of the panel say that it's fairly valued. But there is a sense that the the dollar has been uh, supported um, by 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 Fed policy relative to that in the rest of the world, and, and there is a sense that relative to its history. Um, the dollar is um, is 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 is, is, is uh, somewhat rich rather than um, somewhat cheap at the at the, at the, at, the, at the current time, and I think looking at the next slide, another factor which may be weighing on views about the dollar is this uh, very big question about whether the uh, dollar dominance of the financial system um, is, um, is 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 being called into question. Um, it's very hard to quantify this, um, but I think this question is really quite quite interesting. So for most of our panelists, two-thirds of our panelists don't see dollar dominance as being challenged in the foreseeable future. Um, so there is no concern there. But the, there are quite a few people who did um, nevertheless see a potential challenge for, to the dollar, dollar's role from geopolitical forces, um, where some countries are trying to uh, avoid using the dollar as much as they did in the past. Um, and uh, secondly, you are seeing some um, central banks or speculation that some central banks might look to diversify away from the, um, the, the dominance of the dollar in their foreign 
and their foreign currency holdings. There's also a bit of concern, I think, also around um, uh, around digital assets and whether they will eventually play a role. But that's a that, that was probably the least um, least mentioned uh, factor. Um, the other category is quite interesting, uh, and I think one can't help thinking that there is some um, you know that that uh, certainly if the if, if the if, if there's a failure to increase the debt ceiling, that that would um, not help the dollar's position um, uh, in its role in the in the global financial uh, position. So I think, you know, overall, um, there's, there's definitely a downward bias, a downward skew in people's views of the dollar. It's not extreme, but there are some concerns around valuation and there are con some concerns that the geopolitical politics isn't support is, 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 is starting to ch challenge the dollar's role, but not in the not in the foreseeable future. With that, I'll hand back to, uh, to Dana. Thank you. Regarding risks, it's still the case that most of the respondents, or, or not most, but a good share, 42%, think that the greatest downside risk to the U.S. is too much monetary policy tightness. What's interesting is that this was actually a greater percentage in February, and more people shifted their votes to financial crisis at 21%, and other at 23%. And we took a look at what other was, and other was a combination of financial crisis, but also the debt ceiling. So um, these other risks really cropped up, but certainly in terms of the housing market bust, now no one believes that is a, a serious risk uh, to the US economy while that had some positive probability in the past. Um, in terms of the desired soft landing, more people in, in May relative to February believe that the Fed achieving its desired soft landing is the greatest upside risk uh, to the economy or upside. So people don't like the word risk. <laughs> in terms of the US banking crisis, um, most respondents think the crisis is, is contained, but it's still ongoing. And um, a good percentage, 21%, think that it's going to worsen, but you still have a notable 15% who think that there was no real crisis um, going on. And in terms of the impact of the banking crisis, which is pretty important, um, most many respondents, 47%, say that it will be the equivalent of the Fed tightening anywhere from 26 to 50 basis points. And that's uh, somewhat more than what uh, Fed officials have been saying. In terms of the debt ceiling, um, pretty optimistic that it's either going to be raised or suspended. So raised means you you raise a level and suspension just means you kind of kick it down the road and you think about it at some future date. Um, very few think that the debt ceiling will be breached and no one thinks that it will be done away with, which is uh, the repeal. And in terms of what would be the implications of going through the debt ceiling and the default, um, most respondents, 57%, say that a global financial crisis will occur, but only if the impasse persists for several weeks or more. And then a large 23% said that the crisis, that a global financial crisis will happen immediately. And then you have uh, one fifth saying that there will be no crisis at all. So I will stop sharing. And I thank my colleagues for all their comments. And we will open it up now for questions from our audience. Thank you. Brent, why is there a distinction between what the Fed is saying and the markets are saying about interest rates and possibly an interest rate cut? So um, let me start with a simpler and a simpler question. There is a distinction. 
uh, it's still there. So the, the median uh, from the summary economic projections of the FOMC has the Fed funds rate at 5.1% uh, at year end 2023, similar to respondents to the survey. Uh, um, and market participants are expecting uh, there, there's probability mass on, on lowering. So either, you know, uh, um, somewhere between, you know, four, four and a quarter and four and a, 4.75%. Um, why is there that, that distinction? I think a large part of this, I don't think this is a, again, my view, I don't think this is a Fed communication uh, issue at the moment. I think that there are differing views on the, on the real side of the economy and what's gonna happen. And again, you can see that reflected in our panelist surveys, uh, especially for, for growth. There's a, a non-trivial uh, uh, set of our forecasters that are anticipating a, a recession. And then there are those on the other end that are expecting conditions to be uh, uh, somewhat stronger. So I think a, a large part of this uh, disconnect between where markets are on, the, on rates and where the, the FOMC is on rates has to do with differing outlooks. Yeah, one thing I would add is uh, it's the outlook on inflation as well. Because if you look at market-based uh, measures of inflation expectations or you know uh, inflation swaps, they have inflation coming in much more quickly than you know either our panelists or the Fed summary of economic projections yeah, have. Yeah. So if you feed that into any Taylor rule, it would yep. say that the Fed would start easing sooner than what you know the the panelists or you know the Fed is saying they're going to do. Yeah, I agree with that. Thanks. So someone has a question. Isn't it true that Mester and Williams expect inflation to go down to 2% somewhere in 2025? Does anyone know that? I don't know that off the top of my head. I do know that the FOMC median's at 2.1%. So it's in the range of two, not quite to two. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, those individuals have identified their own uh, forecasts. Uh, but, but, you know, Again, my view is we're, we're, we're well north of where the, the target uh, inflation is still well north of kind of where price stability is at. Uh, if we started seeing uh, a data that, that suggested we'd get there, you know, within the range of 2%, you know, within a quarter, uh, 25 basis points at 2%, I think most folks would be pretty happy with that. So the next question is, at what point will the interest burden on the federal debt become an issue? Um, I'd like to weigh in on that. It is now, currently. <laughs> I mean, the Fed has raised interest rates very aggressively, um, very very high in, in the course of a year and a couple of months, and already debt service has exploded as a share of GDP, and it's only going to get worse going forward. And certainly, when you think about over the next decades, a couple of decades, it's going to become as big as a defense budget. So we're already starting this problem. and. I think that that kind of ups the ante in terms of the debt ceiling uh, crisis that we're in, um, if, if you want to call it a crisis. Uh, the fact that uh, we do have very outsized debt, debt service is rising as a share, and there's you know a lot of disagreement in Washington. And I'm surprised that markets haven't punished the U.S. more for getting so close, um, especially given the fact that debt as a share of GDP is like 98%. Whereas the last time we went through this, it was much lower, you know, um, you know closer to 70%. And even before that, um, back in 20, 2009, it was more like 40%. And so we've really ramped up. And so I think that the problem is starting now. 
Anyone else want to weigh in? Okay. Um, next question, David, can you please distinguish the way Powell and Lagarde are handling inflation as well as the banking crisis with their policies? Is Lagarde a tougher one? <laughs> <laughs> well, where should we start with that? Um, it's, good. It's, 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 it's an important question because I think um, you know, it's really asking about the nature of the inflation problem in the US and Europe and is it, um, and is it different? And at the risk of oversimplification, the US problem is much more one of aggregate demand or excessive aggregate demand. Um, whereas in Europe, um, I, I think the view would be that it's more of a, a supply-driven shock. And so to some extent, some would argue that that um, it's easier for the Fed to justify its interest rate stance, um, you know, because you know there is there is a sense in which demand has been very very strong, has come back stronger than people expected, and has been more persistent. Whereas in Europe, um, there have been multiple supply shocks, not least in the energy sector, um, as a result of the um, the conflict um, in, in 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 Ukraine. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I think the I think the other issue, obviously, is that the nature of inflation is different because the U.S. includes shelter and Europe doesn't. Um, so be very, very careful when you compare um, these two pictures. But I, I would say on balance, I, I think the European uh, problem is, uh, is, 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 is is perhaps stickier at the moment, at least in the US, you've got core, you know, you've got core goods inflation coming down, you don't see that in Europe. And I don't think we've probably seen the peak in uh, Eurozone wage inflation um, I, I, either. And all the time, I think Europe has the additional challenges that some of the money aggregates um, are rolling over very, very abruptly. So the ECB is tightening into a um in, into a situation where you know some some of the the money indicators are are, are, are are flashing red so i think it is important to distinguish the inflation problem is different between the us and in and and and, and in europe um but it's pretty it's a, it's a very complex question which we could spend uh, the whole the whole evening discussion on the banking crisis i think at the moment europe would say it's in a better place um um, you know, I think it would argue that the way it has managed the important, systemically important banks in Europe has so far been um, been 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 more successful. Um, and you know, as the you know U.S. policymakers have made, have made clear, there are going to have to be further further changes uh, to the to the to to to, um, to 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 increase supervision and regulation of the of the of the, of the U.S. banking system. And I, to my understanding, you know the. You know the European banking system isn't sitting on the same kind of um, uh, treasury losses as its U.S. counterparts are. So I think there are, you know, bottom line, there are some real differences here um, between the two economies, um, and um, you know, there's some pluses and minuses as to who's got who's got the bigger problem. So Europe has its problems, but there's different ones to the U.S. Thanks, David. Next question: You mentioned that the respondents were quite divergent in their answers. Which areas, in your opinion, do you believe has the most divergence occurred? So it sounds like um, questions for Ryan and Brent. So and David. <laughs> Ryan, I'll kick off, and then you know you can you can fill in. I think so. On on page seven of the the report on the survey, you can get a notion of 
the uh, median from the top, uh, top, the five highest forecasts and the five lowest forecasts for each one of these variables. And from, from my view, uh, it, uh, I think the divergence starts with uh, uh, individuals' views on uh, the likelihood of a recession this year and in turn, how persistent inflation is gonna be. I think those are the two big uh, uh, key areas of, uh, uh, that, that are leading to this dispersion. And I also think that you know, layering um, the, the views of dispersion on inflation, I think that's connected to what happens with the real side of the economy. So, so uh, for GDP growth, the, the five lowest forecasts, the median of five lowest forecasts is negative uh, 0.4%. Uh, for the year uh, relative to 1.6% for the five highest. Uh, I, I think it, it all sort of stems from that, that narrative about what uh, uh, forecasters are anticipating is gonna happen during the year. Yeah, the only thing I would add, and I think you hit on all the key ones, uh, is you know, the dispersion around the outlook for recessions also feeding into labor market projections. So you look at the five lowest, they expect, you know, job losses over the next you know, four or five quarters, whereas the five highs expect you know, still rock solid job growth. So I think that is another uh, factor that's uh, you know, causing a lot of dispersion in, in economic forecasts. Yeah, if, yeah. If, if I could just add one, one final thing. Uh, I, I think that the issue around dispersion may actually uh, reside in how people see monetary policy. Um, I think there is a, a a lot of uncertainty about what the impacts of the or what has been one of the most aggressive tightenings in monetary policy seen over the last twelve months. And you know, on the one hand, a lot of the monetary indicators are flashing, you know, flat flashing amber, um, and yet the impact has so far been it appears relatively relatively modest and i think people i think certainly in financial markets people are having a real problem trying to weigh up um you know what the impact of that monetary tightening is and and i suspect that policymakers are facing the same 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 dilemma but you know people we haven't seen a tightening of this magnitude um you have to go back and for you know for more than more than 40 years so i think you know trying to work out how the financial system is going to respond to it when it's going to respond to it i think that may be a factor in the wide dispersion in forecasts that we're seeing at the moment I mean, I think the monetary policy tightening is having an impact. You know, it just happens on different yeah. parts of the economies with different lags. I mean, we've already seen the housing market um, fold in on itself, and that's what the Fed wanted, you know, for there to be fewer sales and yeah. less activity. Um, businesses are starting to pull back on investments of uh, on infrastructure and machinery and equipment. They're still spending on IP, but a lot of that's digitization, right? And, and, um, automation that's happening because of labor shortages. Um, and, you know, we've seen pull consumers pull back a little bit on durable. So the, the last shoe to fall really is um, spending on services. Um, but when I look at the labor market, the biggest difference this time around is labor shortages. Like we've, we've never had labor shortages to this extent, and we have a giant demographic leaving. And so that's why the labor market is not slowing as fast as some people would think. Indeed, a lot of businesses are actually hoarding labor. So I think that, um, you know, you, you kind of have to look beneath the surface to see the Fed's actions on the economy, but also realize that the labor market, even with the survey respondents, I mean, they have the, the unemployment rate rising 
a little under one percentage point. <laughs> that's still, you know, by the SOM rule, that's still, yeah. you know, signaling some kind of downturn. So that I think, it, and just looking at the GDP forecasts, like the bottom five definitely have negative numbers and the top five have growth that's, you know, pretty reasonable, you know, above 2%. If, if I could just follow up, I guess, on, on what you said, Dana, and what David had mentioned, you know, uh, I was actually trying to avoid this to keep myself from getting in trouble, but give it a shot anyway. Um, so, so David, you mentioned that it's the sharpest tightening we've seen in 40 years, but it's tightened to a level that is just north of being restrictive yeah, yeah, in, in terms of the real Fed funds rate. So, so I think you you could you could view that one of one of one of two ways really but the, the way that you espoused as as tightening financial conditions and we've seen uh, uh, you know uh, some of the issues with maybe tightening quickly uh, but at the same time uh, on the real side of the economy it's not it's not entirely clear to me um, in the context of a Taylor rule if you were taking a macro perspective from this that that the the fed funds rate is significantly tightened relative to a sort of neutral stance Thank you. Are there any more questions? Please feel free to write them in the chat. Okay, it seems, Caitlin, we don't have any more questions. Any final thoughts? Okay, back to you, Caitlin. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with Nave. We hope you'll join us for the 20th annual NEEB Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar, July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Economic Measurement Seminar provides a unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you've previously attended, we encourage you to come back for Track B sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing, wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. Early bird deadline is June 14th. Please visit nave.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.